0: Okay, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do bow before you now in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give praise and honor and glory to you, for you deserve all our worship. Lord, we thank you for the book of Daniel, which clearly shows us that you are in sovereign control of all your creation. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning you would guide our study of this book, that you would illumine our minds and show us truth, that you would give us the uh, ability and the desire to incorporate it into our lives. So, Lord, we are thankful for the church and the opportunity to be together. We We do give praise to your name. Amen. This is week number 16 in our study of the book of Daniel. And we're over just beginning chapter 6. And so um, last week we looked for the whole lesson, really, at chapter 5 and verse 31, which introduces us to a man named Darius the Mede. Um, It says that the kingdom was given to Darius the Mede after, as Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was killed and the Babylonian Empire came to an end as the Medo-Persian Empire took it over. And all throughout chapter six, this person, Darius the Mede, is described as the king who is doing most of the activity that happens in the chapter, or at least directing most of the activity that happens in the chapter. And so the reason we spent a whole lesson talking about Darius the Mede and who he is, and how does he match up to the historical record is because this is one of the points, one of the major points, where the critics of the book of Daniel, not believing that it's inspired or that it was written in the 600 B.C., attack it, because there is no person named Darius the Mede in the historical records. And, and that we concede, but there, there are two main, well-thought-about, reasonable um, thoughts about who this person, Darius the Mede, was, and how does he match up to the historical record, because the name Darius is used in the, in the cuneiforms and in all the historical documents that we have many times, and so that name is not unfamiliar, but someone called Darius the Mede is not in the record. So, we talked about that we looked at two main historians, um, the first one being Herodotus, and the second one being Xenophon. And both of these men came 100, 150 years after um, this event happened where Babylon fell. And they wrote about it as historians. Um, You assume looking back at records and talking to people, and that's how they came to their conclusions. And the most popular view today follows that of uh, Herodotus. Mainly because when the cuneiform writings were found in 1850s, um, and these are the cuneiform writings of both the the Medes and the Persians and others, uh, the Babylonians included, um, some of the things that Herodotus wrote about were strengthened by what was found in those cuneiforms. But his account of Cyrus is not in the cuneiforms, so there. But people have seen that some of the things he wrote about were accurate, so they've gone to his version of what happened. And Herodotus wrote that in 549 BC, 10 years before Babylon fell in 539, that Cyrus the Persian conquered the Medes. And from that point on, Media was just a province of the Persian Empire. And so when they conquered Babylon, that this Darius the Mede is really Cyrus, because he's the one who's in control. And it was just another way of speaking of Cyrus. The Persian was to call him Darius, in Daniel's language, the Mede. Darius being a throne title, like president or emperor or something like that, as opposed to a personal name. And so they're the mainstream today, uh, most people, most evangelicals would tell you that, that Cyrus and Darius the Mede are one and the same person. But there's another, and that follows after Herodotus. Xenophon did not write that, and his account differs from what um, Herodotus wrote. Xenophon says there was a, a Median king over the Babylonian kingdom when it first fell and that that king's name was the II. And so, um, he, Xenophon doesn't call him Darius the Mede. He doesn't even call him Darius. He calls him Syaxares of Median descent and says he was over the Babylonian kingdom. And he writes that he was much older than Cyrus. And we know that from the historical records that if there was a person named Darius the Mede or Cyaxares, who was a real person, he was definitely older than Cyrus would have been. And Cyrus would have been very young ten years before if he actually um, took over the Median kingdom, as Herodotus wrote. So there's this thought, based upon what Xenophon wrote, that Cyaxares II is the same person as Darius the Mede, Darius again being the throne name. Syaxares being his personal name, and that he and Cyrus were co-regents over the kingdom of Babylon and and other areas when this event that Daniel writes about happened. And they remain co-regents, one being from the Median kingdom, one being from the Persian kingdom, which is why we call it the Medo-Persian kingdom. Um, That clearly is spoken by everybody. Um, about the historical record, so Dari- um, Daniel wrote that Darius was 62 when the kingdom was given to him, which fits with the fact that he was toward you know he was older, he was later in his life than Cyrus. Because Cyrus goes on to do a lot of other things um, that we'll see later on, and the thought is that Syaxares II, Darius the Mede, died about two years after. Babylon fell and that gives plenty of time for the things that happened in Daniel chapter 6 and what he writes over in Daniel chapter 9 to have taken place two years is more than enough time for that to happen and you know I think that Daniel somewhat supports that view that there were co-regents because he starts the chapter with Darius the Mede chapter 6 and he ends the chapter with Darius the Mede and Cyrus Um, saying that he was successful under both of their reigns. So I I believe that Daniel um, indirectly supports that thought. And also when he writes that the law of the Medes and the Persians, a couple of times, I think three times, he mentions that as we go through this chapter. So again, speaking to a joint reign over um, Babylon at the beginning. And so... um, not that it means anything and not that it carries any weight, but I take the the latter view that the II is Darius the Mede and that he did reign as a Median king over Babylon for at least a couple of years. Um, it doesn't really matter which one you, you assume, as long as you can speak to those who say there's never been per, a person named Darius the Mede. Both of those or evangelical views that address the fact that Darius the Mede doesn't exist in the historical records. And so either one or the other probably is right, and you just have to choose which one. And if you do a bunch of reading, you'll come to a conclusion, depending on who you read, right? So um, anyway, uh, that's why we spent the time going through it. That There are at least two legitimate views that have a lot of strength in the historical records both of them have their strengths and their weaknesses so um, we spent that time just so um, we would not leave that unaddressed because that is where the critics would attack those who don't believe this book was written in the 600s bc or that Darius the Mede was even a person they say he's he's a myth he didn't really exist so um, that's not the view that we'll take So this morning we'll begin into chapter six and walk through some of the details here. So I'll just begin by reading, beginning at verse one of Daniel six. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire king. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Okay, so here's Daniel um, being uh, appointed as one of the three commissioners of the province of Babylon, and underneath him and two other commissioners are 120 satraps, which are like County officials, if you want to think about it. They're in charge of particular regions. And the reason that Darius the Mede appointed these guys is so that the kingdom might not suffer loss. And that could be in multiple ways. That could be someone actually taking part of their land. It could be by corruption through the government and someone taking money by embezzling. Um, it could be just by letting evildoers get away with doing harm in their land. I mean, it could be a, a number of ways that the kingdom could suffer loss. And so these satraps have the responsibility of a particular geographical region to control it and make sure none of those kind of things happened. And so they must be in some way trusted by Darius and then, just to make sure, he puts over them three commissioners. So that would mean that each of these, if they were evenly dispersed, had 40, had 40 satraps under them. So that's a lot of people to control. That's a lot of authority. And so Daniel is one of those three commissioners. So don't know exactly why. I mean, he had on a purple robe and a necklace around his neck and a ring on his finger when they killed uh, Belshazzar, so maybe they thought he was somebody special, or maybe they interviewed a bunch of people, and people said, oh, this Daniel has been, back when Nebuchadnezzar, he was second in command of the kingdom, and he's very wise, and he has special talents, or we don't know all that, or how these 120 satraps were distinguished, but we know that they were, and that they were put in place and that Daniel was one of the three commissioners, and as always, by God's favor, Daniel starts to perform better than the other two commissioners. And so Darius notices this, and he plans to appoint Daniel as his second-in-command over the whole kingdom, over those other commissioners, and therefore over all the satraps. So don't know if he was going to bring in another commissioner to take Daniel's place. We're not told that. But we do know that Daniel was getting ready to be elevated. And <clears throat> we also know that that was not a private matter. It was public because all these other commissioners and satraps know about it. So maybe Darius had announced that he was going to do this. But it was well known um, that Darius favored Daniel and that he was going to appoint him as second in command of all of the um, kingdom. So um, God, again, favors Daniel. Daniel always distinguishes himself. They, They check his record of all that he's done since he's been a commissioner, and they can find no evidence of anything that would even begin to be able to accuse him of anything. Daniel is pristine in all that he does, always has been throughout the book, and you notice that in this chapter, Daniel continues to write in the third person, calling himself Daniel and that this Daniel and those types of things. So this is the last chapter where he'll write in the third person, but he continues, as he has from chapter 1, to write you know, in the third person. So unable to find any dirt on Daniel, can't find anything to accuse him of, And and they even admit that. Um, Then beginning in verse 5, the story continues on. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law and his God. So they turned from the political arena to the religious arena and because they can't find anything in the political arena then these commissioners and satraps by agreement to agreement to the king sorry came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows king darius live forever and, uh, and all the commissioners of the kingdom the prefects and the satraps the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Then King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Okay, so these men now become tricksters or evildoers um, and come up with a plan of how they can trap Daniel. So um, notice a couple of things here, uh, because this will be important later. Um, You notice that, verse 6, these commissioners and satraps came by agreement so you think that's all of them right including the ones who are under daniel and the next verse confirms that it's every one of them because verse 7 says all the commissioners of the kingdom the prefects and the satraps all of them are in this plot together so there's daniel and then there's everybody else And they're all joined together against Daniel to trick Darius so that they might accuse Daniel. So this grand plan, um, you would think probably Daniel knew about it, that they were all conspiring against him. doesn't say that, but I mean, Daniel's a wise guy. And 40 of these satraps are underneath his command. And so I just have a feeling that Daniel probably knew this was all going on. Um, But he doesn't take any action against it that we see anywhere in here. He ignores it, doesn't obey it, but we'll see that in just a moment. So they come to Darius, and the injunction says, if you worship any god other than Darius during these 30 days, that you'll be thrown into the lion's den and you notice they say that it this injunction cannot be changed according to the law um doesn't say that yet right we haven't come to that we'll come to it in the next couple of verses no yeah all right so in verse 8 now o king oh sorry we got all the way down through 9 yeah, verse 8, sorry, that says that the, the injunction, once it's signed by a king, cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, that's a dumb rule, you know, because he's the king. He should be able to change anything, but nevertheless, it's the law. And so once a king says something, this is kind of like when John the Baptist got his head cut off. And the king said to his daughter, I'll give you anything that you want in the kingdom. And then the evil mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And the king then, although he didn't really want to, had to because he had promised and he couldn't change. I mean, he'd be seen as weak if he changed his mind. So he had John the Baptist's head cut off. It's that same kind of thing that... Darius has made and signed this injunction so it can't be changed. Otherwise, he would be seen as weak in his, in his kingship. So he can't change it. And so the story goes on, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, so he knows about this, right? I mean, this would have been proclaimed throughout the whole kingdom because the penalty is pretty harsh. If you go against this, you're going to be thrown into the lion's den. So everybody in the whole kingdom knew about this. They had to. I mean, they announced it to everybody, as any injunction of the king would be announced to everybody. So Daniel knew that the document was signed. He entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. So Daniel continues. Then these men came by agreement again and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, For 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den. The king replied, The statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. And that's what they wanted the king to say. That's why they asked him the question. So that out of the king's mouth, he would say, Yes, I made that injunction, and it cannot be changed according to the law. Previously, they had said that. But now you have the king saying it so he said yeah i made an injunction and it can't be changed according to the law so they have the king saying exactly what they want to now you notice that darius knew sorry that daniel knew that the penalty for him praying to the god most high was to be cast into the daniel into the lion's den he knows that right When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continues to do what he has done every day that he's been in Babylon, and that's to pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. Now, it must have been well known that Daniel was devout and that he did this because they know about it. He's up in um, his rooftop. He has windows that are open toward Jerusalem, and he can be seen. And so people probably knew about this. You you can just imagine Daniel having been in Nebuchadnezzar's court, second in command in the kingdom, three times a day would say, could you guys excuse me, and then he would go and pray. And then he would do that every day. So this was not the same thing when he was a commissioner. i'm gonna be gone for a little while and he go and pray so you know that people knew about this and they know about it they knew about it before they ever tried to trick the king and make the injunction because they knew they could catch daniel being faithful to his god and praying to him so again you notice they come by agreement to the king and um well they yeah they found daniel then they went to the king in verse 11 these men came by agreement now i don't know if all you know if you think about it there's two commissioners there's 120 satraps at least that's 122 people that's a lot of people so i don't know if all of them came or just they sent up the commissioners or maybe a select group but anyway they catch him, and and so you got multiple witnesses that daniel has done this and so they go to the king the king agrees with them that he made an injunction and he says it can't be changed and that yes the penalty is that someone would be thrown into the lion's den if they were caught disobeying the injunction which said you can't worship any other god and clearly daniel was worshiping another god now the story goes on right and so after in verse 12 where he says that the injunction can't be revoked then these satraps and commissioners then they answered and spoke before the king Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you o king or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petitions three times a day. So they accuse Daniel of disobeying the injunction. Now, you notice something here. You get some of the sense of why they're against Daniel, right? He's one of the exiles from Judah. And these other guys aren't. They're Babylonians who are now underneath the reign of Darius the Mede, and so this has always been the case, right? We've seen this all the way through that you had these four Hebrews, now one Hebrew, who is going to be made second to the king over the whole kingdom, and all these native people can't stand it, but previously they didn't go against Daniel because he had Nebuchadnezzar as his strength and You remember all the things, I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been thrown into a fiery furnace and walked out unharmed. So nobody was going to go against those four guys when they were in control. But now here they've tricked the new ruler who doesn't know about all of that and tricked him that he has to now take action against Daniel. And so notice this this is an interesting response, I think of Darius the Mede. I mean, he's king. He's been king of media for a long time. He's 62 years old. He's, you know, in authority, and he can do whatever he wants to, and no one can say no. And notice his response, beginning in verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement again to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den." the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, who you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. So, interestingly, the king is greatly distressed and tries to figure out a way within the law to release Daniel from the penalty of being thrown into the lion's den. He tries all day long until... Close to the evening, the satraps and the commissioners, by agreement, they all come and they say, King, you can't change this. You've got to throw him into the lion's den. So there's this relationship between Darius and Daniel that is quite close. Sort of like between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, you remember. So Daniel, for some reason and we don't know all that is involved here, is closer to Darius than any of these other guys are. And Darius is concerned. I mean, obviously so. Daniel's going to be killed if he's thrown into the lion's den. I mean, that's the expectation of everybody, right? That's why they made this injunction that he'll get thrown into the lion's den and the lions will eat him alive. Because that's what lions do. And that's why they kept the lion's den, as a place of punishment. So the king has no choice, because again, he'd be seen as a weak king if he went against the injunction, and so he doesn't, and he gives orders to throw Daniel into the lion's den, and then interestingly, he says that your God will deliver you, so Obviously, Daniel must have told him about his God and must have distinguished himself before Darius in some way so that Darius knew about the God of Daniel. I mean, he's, come, he's an outsider who's come in, hasn't been there a long time, and yet Daniel has distinguished himself, he's close to Daniel, and he knows about Daniel's God, just like Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel being the ambassador to Darius for God, being faithful in all that he does, being the best commissioner that there is. So there's this relationship, and the king is close to Daniel, and now the king doesn't necessarily believe what he tells Daniel, that your God will save you, because that's given in the next verses of his doubt. So beginning in... 17, a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. If you break the king's seal, then you're going to be killed. That's the penalty for breaking the king's seal. So nobody can rescue Daniel. So he's in the lion's den with a stone over the mouth, sealed with the king's ring, which if you break it, you're going to be thrown into the lion's den yourself. So no one's going to do that. Then the king, in verse 18, went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day, and went in haste to the lion's den when he had come near the den to daniel he cried out with a troubled voice the king spoke and said to daniel daniel servant of the living god has your god whom you serve constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions then daniel spoke to the king "O king live forever so It's obvious that the king did not necessarily believe what he said to Daniel before Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, right? Daniel, your God will save you, but I'm going to fast, I'm not going to take any entertainment, and I'm not going to be able to sleep all night because he's not sure. He's not sure that Daniel won't be eaten alive by by the lions. So he hurries off at daybreak. You wonder if any of those other guys were with him right? You just kind of wonder about that, probably. And then he calls out to Daniel, and Daniel responds, O king, live forever. And then he gives how he was able to survive through the night. And we know this, I mean, you know this story, but it's just a lot of little things that are very interesting through here that you don't catch on first blush. So Daniel says, O king, live forever, in verse 21, and then it continues, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king, notice this, was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, you wonder what this looked like, right? Daniel falls into the lion's den, cast into the lion's den, and then the lions are going to approach, right? And then there's this angel. So what did the angel do? Did he hold the jaws of all the lions closed? Because you notice it uses multiple lions here and multiple mouths shut the mouths of the lions. And so is he holding their mouths shut? Or is he just so fearful that the lions cower and stay away from Daniel because he's got this angel standing beside him? Don't really know, right? But something happened where the lions did not attack Daniel. Now, it's not because the lions aren't hungry, right? That's obvious by the rest of the story. So it's not because they didn't want to kill Daniel. They did. But this angel somehow, not sure how, prevented them from doing so. I have a feeling he just stood there and that the lions were fearful. Fearful because they had never seen anything like this before. Neither had Daniel, for that matter. Now, Daniel will see angels multiple times later in the book, but at this point, we don't know of any angel that has appeared before Daniel. But Daniel recognized it, that an angel had been there, and so he he testifies to that, that an angel shut their mouths. Um, So... If the satraps were there with them and the commissioners and heard that, then you can just imagine, right? <laughs> you can just, especially when they lift Daniel out of the lion's den, it's sort of like when the guys walked out of the fiery furnace and they weren't burnt. Here's Daniel coming out of the lion's den, having been there all night long and unharmed. No, no problem at all. Nothing wrong with him. And so... Um, you know the rest of the story that the king judges those who were against daniel but i want to save that till next time and and we'll try and walk through the end of this chapter and actually begin a more difficult chapter which is chapter seven where daniel begins to write in first person and has a vision that can be perplexing go ahead Andy. Well, i was just Right. Very explicit in the scriptures at that point. It's also very clear that over time, with certain animals, that fear either diminishes or is utterly gone because we see the consequences of it all. But it's just interesting to think about this as why the past. Yeah, yeah, the dominion of men over the animals, and first peaceful, and then no animals really, you see, attacking or whatever. Then you have David in the field, who has to kill multiple animals who try to come after the sheep. And so they obviously didn't fear him, and they don't fear you today. You go to Africa and go in near the lions, and they're probably going to eat you. At that time, there was a God-given fear. Oh, yeah. Right. And your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. But then uh he comes back. Yeah, the end of the chapter. And he says, Daniel, oh Daniel, servant of what God? Yeah, the, the living God. The living God, which is, a, it just helps you wonder if there wasn't a lot of discipleship about the dead gods of man and the living God of Daniel that was in Yeah, and. Yeah, and, and the privilege of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius to be close to Daniel, and to have all this evidence, and you don't know if um, if Darius was a believer. I, I've told you before. I think Nebuchadnezzar was that God. I mean, because he speaks about God being his God, um, and you get something very similar here, especially at the end of the chapter, where Darius makes a proclamation to all the kingdom that they're to worship or fear the God of Daniel. So you just wonder about these guys because, I mean, you have Daniel there, right? The most faithful person on the planet at this time, giving testimony to you every day because he's one of your commissioners or Nebuchadnezzar's court uh, case. He's in your court. He is the number two in command of the kingdom. So, um, yeah, the... Yeah, is our devotion to God so obvious that the people we're associated with know it? I mean, that's a good question. And with da- with Daniel, it's obvious that it was. Everybody knew about it, even if they didn't believe, they still knew about it. And so he didn't wear, you know, keep his religion secret. Go ahead. Herus was probably a pagan. He was definitely a pagan when he got there. <laughs> Yes. He could easily have believed uh, Daniel's God brief, Right. Without giving up the belief well, Yeah, and we saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar remained polytheistic even after he had been intru- introduced to God. And only after coming back from insanity do we get a hint that he may be saved. So it's very well possible that Darius could have remained polytheistic and not trusted in the true God. That's a, definitely a possibility. Because the whole king, I mean, he'd been raised his whole life. The, Medo, the Medes and the Persians were both polytheistic. They, they didn't have single gods. And, you know, you don't, until later, get the mythology of the Greeks and then the mythology of the Romans to copy the Greeks that all comes later, but these guys all had multiple gods. The Assyrians were known historically as worshiping the sun, that was their main god, which becomes very prominent when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed later because it's the guys who worship the sun who do it right. Yeah, and, and, and this is a distinction, remember, written by Daniel. <laughs> so, oh, um, the most faithful person on the planet. Um, so anyway, that's where we'll end today. We'll pick up with the punishment, because I want you to think about the punishment. How many people are involved in the punishment? Because we always think of it as a couple guys get thrown into the lion's den. Not so much. Not so much. Upwards of 500. So we'll talk about it next time. Thanks for your time.